I should have known. The signs were there. How could we be so blind? Common expressions that are on the kind of the aftermath, the, the other side of a major scandal. Well, we should have known that there were signs. Uh, how, how couldn't we tell? Certain things and in, in, in words and phrases that are said. The signs were there. When it's revealed that an influential pastor was abusing their position and harming others, phrases like this can be heard. When it's seen that somebody who professed faith in Christ and now has rejected the faith, we should have seen. How didn't we know? Sometimes people are blinded by the spectacle. They're seduced by the influence. It's not hard for the biblical description of above reproach to turn into untouchable. And today we're going to see some ways that Peter describes the false teachers of his day. And to be honest, we have a lot of missing information. We don't know the exact details and all the background information. But we do have what we need. And it gives us a lot of application as we seek to be discerning today, to guard against these traits, these teachers ourselves, and also for us personally, that we are not enticed into this kind of lifestyle ourselves. And so we're going to look at these really in reverse order. Uh, in Second Peter uh, chapter 2, we're going to start in the second half of verse 10. And Pastor Nate covered the, the first half of verse 10, uh, the last message that we had in Second Peter. And I just want to read that first before we dive into our text this morning. And especially those who indulge, he's talking about being uh, guarded against, um, and those who are going to face punishment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, and those who despise authority. Now in our section, we can see this, this idea of despising authority, being arrogant, and this idea of defiling passion being addressed in kind of a reverse order. Right? And so we're going to see this in the first half of our passage. Here this morning, we're going to see this idea of despising authority or arrogance. And then we're going to see this defiling passion from the second half of 13 to 16. So let's read our passage this morning. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is a wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery 
insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained that prophet's madness. Oh, good text this morning. Good text this morning. Let's, let's unpack it in, again, two parts. Verse 10b uh, uh, to 13. 10b uh, uh, to 13. False teachers are ruled by their pride. False teachers are ruled by their pride. Again, this is unpacking the second half, or the first half of verse 10 in reverse order. And so this despising authority really is seen as bold and this willful arrogance. So the false teachers are arrogant. Their pride is seen in their arrogance. Verse 10 says they're bold, they're willful. Some translations say bold and arrogant. That's the willful that we're talking about. That's, That's what it's getting at. They're arrogant in their actions. And as we will see, they're they're not afraid to hide it. They're asserting their own agenda and their own ideas instead of submitting to the will and word of God. This is a mark of these false teachers and false teachers today as well. Arrogance. Pride is said to be the root of all sin. It was how a lot of People in church history understood sin. They had their vice list, and pride was was the root. And further, a a theme throughout Scripture is God humbling the proud and exalting the humble. Humbling the proud and exalting the humble. And here we see the false teachers, they're marked by their pride. It gives us a picture into their hearts. It tells us their motives Their goal is themselves, not others. And this is contrasted with with Paul's instructions about what a pastor must be like. Like, what are the qualifications for elder, overseer, over church? And here's what what Paul tells us. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He must not be a recent convert. Why? What's the danger? What's the reason Paul gives in 1 Timothy? So that he's not puffed up and full of himself. This is not what a a, a person who's teaching the people of God, this is not what they're to be. They're not to be puffed up and full of themselves. Why? Because then they're under the power of Satan. They're not the mouthpiece of God. They're not humbly teaching the word of God. They're asserting themselves and their arrogance. And that's exactly what we see here. Bold and willful. They're arrogant. And their arrogance is seen in how they talk about these these glorious ones. So these false teachers blaspheme angels. Right, so the pride is seen as a specific way. It's not merely something in, internal, but it appears to have manifested in a way that they spoke of the glorious ones. Right? So it, it raises a couple questions for us. One, first, what are the glorious ones? 
And also, what does it mean to blaspheme the glorious ones? Uh, it's, here, here's where it's a challenge because we don't have a lot of the background information exactly of what they're getting at here. Uh, many, many scholars see this glorious ones as a reference to angels. To angels. Um, I just want to pull up this verse because I think it's, it's helpful for us to examine it, it to understand. So bald and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels though greater in might and power. So glorious ones is seen to be referring to angels, but we have this contrast right here in the middle of it. Right? They don't bla- they, they're not even afraid to blaspheme glorious ones, whereas angels, or but angels. Like, wh- where's the contrast there? So many scholars, they point out that contrast. They say, well, it's probably referring to fallen angels, evil angels. Because it's contrasting these glorious ones, which is a term for angels, with angels who have positive attributes attached to them. Whereas angels, greater in might and power. So it's contrasting glorious ones with angels who have positive attributes attached to them. So many, in fact, the majority would say that their majority of scholars are saying that's what their pride is being seen in right here. It's being seen in their blasphemy of these fallen angels. We don't just have this in Second uh, Peter. This also seems to al- um, align with Jude, which can be a kind of a parallel passage. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel angel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing with, about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Right. So again, if we continue in our section, we're going to see that even angels don't pronounce this judgment. So it seems like there's a, there's a parallel here between Jude 8 and 9 and our second Peter text. And if so, then it does seem like there's a good angel, Michael, um, who's contending with the devil, who's contending with um, these uh, evil creatures, right? And that's what they're blaspheming here. Um, well, if that's the case, it's, we also have to ask, well, what is this blasphemy? Right? What, what are they blaspheming about? Right? What, are, what are they saying? Um, I think it's could be the case. I think it's helpful that it's likely that these false teachers were mocking the possibility that their sins might put them at the mercy of these evil beings. Right? So it could be two things, either ignoring the fact that the spiritual realm exists, including demons, or there's no way that we're under the bondage of these evil ones. Mocking the possibility that their sins are at the mercy of these spiritual beings. So if that's the case, it's, it's interesting. They're asserting that they're better or above the fallen angels when their very pride could be an indicator that they're hostage to such forces. Right. Right. Hey, 
we're better, we're above. Actually, those phrases right there, that's an indicator that you're proud and arrogant. That's not aligning with God's way. You might just be influenced, even in your expression, against the angels themselves. And we see he continues that these false teachers are like animals. They're like animals. They're like rational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming. So first we see this irrational. Right? While these teachers assert that they're better than the angels or perhaps not influenced by the angels, their behavior is reflecting animals. They think they're supra-human, when they're acting in a subhuman way. They're driven by instinct and not truth. And this is something important for us to notice when we think about false teachers in general. They promise freedom while they are in chains. They promise freedom while they're in chains. It's like a gambling addict offering a way to financial freedom. They do not have freedom. They're addicted. They don't truly know the first thing about freedom. And here we have these false teachers trading fellowship with God for acting like animals. This is something that Peter's going to develop further. He says that they're born to be caught. He turns his attention again. There's a reigning theme throughout this chapter of their inability to escape the coming judgment. They're not free from the consequences of their pride. While they assert themselves as high above all others, God will humble the proud. And they're blaspheming about things which they're ignorant. We might think this gives them a pass. Wait, they're ignorant. They don't know. But throughout Scripture, arrogance is associated with willful rejection of the truth. Willful rejection of the truth. They don't know because they don't want to know. They're refusing to humbly understand God's truth. This is important for us to understand in our lives. It's easy to speak to things that we don't really know simply because people will listen to us. This is one of the issues of the Corinthian church. They fell under the teaching of people who spoke eloquently and persuasively, but didn't really know what they were talking about. This doesn't mean someone needs an advanced degree in every subject. Instead, what it's getting at is a degree of humility that understands one's own limitations. In fact, there are many of those whose education can get in the way of humbly submitting to what the text of Scripture clearly says. In a practical application, as we, we think about this, I personally shudder anytime someone says or has an attitude of, I deserve this when it comes to teaching God's Word. I deserve this. I've arrived, so I deserve to teach God's Word. I desire this. Sure, that's a good thing. But if someone thinks that they have arrived or that they're above others, that's a dangerous place to be. The most faithful teachers of God's word are those that humbly submit themselves to it 
and to, lear- and to learning it from others. Put simply, if you're unable to learn from others, you're unqualified to teach the Word of God. Humility, teachability, the desire to learn and to submit and say, this, this, is, this is what I have to teach from. Not me, not, not my intellect, not, not what I have, but this, this is what I bring. This book. Humbly submitting to the word of God. The false teachers thrive by giving a secret knowledge that only they possess. True biblical teaching points to the Word of God, equips people to understand it well for themselves. He continues and says, false teachers get what they give. The teachers deal in harming others and they'll end with receiving harm themselves. The word suffering wrong comes from the same word family used seven times to contrast the righteous ones with the unrighteous false teachers. It's reinforced by the word wrongdoing. It stresses the judicial nature of the suffering, God's just condemnation for their sin. As we look at this section, I want us to think about a few applications for our own lives. One, watch out for pride. Watch out for pride. Arrogance is a marker in this passage of false teachers, and it's not only true in Peter's day. Humility is an important qualification for a teacher. There's a danger of being puffed up and full of oneself. I had a class in, in seminary um, where uh, somebody came in to, to, to lecture. Uh, she had written a book on uh, vices and uh, asked, uh, what does the class want to talk about? And the first one was vainglory. And she laughed and she said, well, this is a room full of pastors, isn't it? Vainglory is kind of like the addiction to attention or popularity or like what, like what people think of us. Must be seen. And she said, that's, that's a really common vice for those in ministry. That's a common struggle for those who are in ministry. Something to be aware of. It's feeding off the attention that someone gets and the affirmation of others. Affirmation is a good thing, but living for it and being ruled by it is dangerous. So we have to be careful and and notice these things in our own heart. It can be easy to go from good intentions to living for the praise to uh, notice that in our own lives. Second, you don't need to know it all. Be careful of resting on what you know and acting like you know what you don't know. Christian discipleship in particular is about moving others forward in their understanding and relationship with Christ, not with becoming clones of us. We desire for others to know him more. 
He has revealed himself to us through his word. We simply need to humbly teach that. And if we don't know, it's fine. Admit it. Don't make something up. We don't need to have all the answers. We just need to point people to the one who does have all the answers. We don't need to be Messiah for someone. We don't need to be a savior for someone. There is one savior. We simply need to point to him. You don't need to know it all. And it, <clears throat> it reminds me of um, just how difficult and just how uh, easy it is to fall into that trap. Just the other day, we were having a, a family discussion, and Noah was talking about um, the members of the Trinity and how they relate to one another. <clears throat> yeah, that, that happened. <laughs> um, and uh, Ashley and I were, were just discussing, we're saying, like, we're trying to unpack this in a way that he understands. We're just like, we, Ashley went to Bible college, we were drilled in theological things. I uh, went to seminary, I'm like, this is hard. <laughs> To, like, unpack this, like, how do people do that? Like, this, this is difficult. And be careful of simply giving an easy answer or something that, like, sells in the moment. It's okay to say, yeah, mommy's confused about that, too. That, that, that's, that's hard. That, that hurts my brain, too. Um, and tell them, like, the best thing that we can. There's one God and there's three persons. It's hard, it's hard to know more than that. Um, or ask somebody, like, how do I unpack this? It could be easy to even have false teaching even within our home because we're trying to be the know-it-all for our kids. It could be a very, you're teaching them a lot through your humility of saying, I don't know that either. Um, let, me, let me ask some people that, that might know and I'd love to, let's discuss this together. Like we're on journey together. It's okay to admit that. Also, be careful of seeing yourself as unable to be influenced. Be careful of thinking that you are on the right side and unable to be touched by the powers and the principalities. Christians can't be possessed by demons, but we certainly can be influenced. We also can be naive in our thinking. It's easy to see evil influences in others and miss how we, we might be influenced. It's even worse to think that we're above any kind of influence. Especially in a day like ours, a day of tribalism, we need to guard against seeing ourselves impervious to blind spots and temptations. No, it can't be me. It can't be my team because they're the team that does this. No, we're on the good side. Like, I can't be influenced by these things. People that I like, people that I share things on social media, like, we can't be in the wrong because they're in the wrong. Are we mimicking the same behavior as the false teachers here? No, certainly not me. I can't be influenced. Be careful. Learn humility in that as well. Second, as we unpack this second section, we'll see that the false teachers are ruled by their passions. False teachers are ruled by their passions. It says they count it their pleasure to revel in the daytime. To revel in the daytime. Their blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. False teachers are unashamed by their pursuit of pleasure. 
Peter shifts from the discussion about their arrogance and pride to their sensuality. It's a common theme that runs throughout the letter. He hopes, he states that they revel in the daytime. Revel has the idea of engaging in a fast, self-indulgent lifestyle. This might be something that's typically done in secret, but they're open in their pursuit of their own pleasure. Doug Moo writes this, In Peter's day, as in ours, indulgence of sinful pleasure usually took place under the cover of darkness. Practicing such hedonistic activities in broad daylight is therefore a sign that the false teachers are completely shameless about their self-indulgence. This, again, is a reminder of, of prosperity preachers who protect themselves from accusation, developing a doctrine of, of being the Lord's anointed. They use out-of-context verses about King David to say that no one can say anything negative against them as preachers, or else they will not be blessed by God. There's recently, uh, about a year ago now, there was a, a, a video clip that, uh, that went around of, of Kenneth Copeland being approached um, about his uh, flying in his private jet from place to place because he said that to fly commercials like flying with demons. And by demons, he just meant the other passengers. And he said, I can't be stained by them and their sinfulness while I'm flying because that just drags down me, a man of God. So I need to be protected from that. And if it means flying in a golf stream, then that's, that's going to be beneficial for the Lord. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. It's easy to justify self-indulgent behavior. There can also be a form of this in ministry leaders who compromise their integrity to gain political power. The potential good result of the compromise is used to justify their behavior. This happens on the right and the left. False teachers also compromise the integrity of the church. So not only is they're pursuing their own pleasure, but they're bringing it into the church. Christ is the unblemished one. Christ is the unblemished one. And these false teachers are blemishes and blots on the bride of Christ. They bring their sinfulness into the body of Christ. Not only are they practicing, not only are they practicing this themselves, but they're also bringing it into the church. Bringing it into the church. It says that they're doing it as they feast with us. In the early church, they had uh, love feasts kind of before the communion or in connection with the communion service. And that's what Paul is kind of calling out there in 1 Corinthians 11, is how that's being abused in that time. And now Peter's calling this out. They're like, you're living in your own pleasure and then you're showing up to eat with the people of God? To act like you're one of us? You're bringing that in here? And Paul calls that out in, in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, like, you can't be addicted to idolatry and then take communion with us. That's perverting the Lord's Supper. That's taking the table of demons and bringing it into the table of the Lord. Are you serious? And yet that's what we see with these false teachers. Not only are they, they doing this out in the open themselves, but they're, they're bringing this 
into the church. Bringing it into the church. We see further characteristics of these false teachers, further characteristics. The first is we see that they have eyes full of adultery. Eyes full of adultery. This is more severe than even our translations can render it. It has the idea of seeing every woman as a potential partner. They are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Insatiable there for sin uh, has the, um, like, what's insatiable for sin? Their eyes are insatiable for sin. Their eyes are insatiable for sin. Is their eyes full of, and some of your Bibles even have kind of a little footnote there next to adultery. It'll say adulterous woman or something like that. Because it's really saying that, that their, their eyes are just, they're, they're peering from one person to another as a potential partner for them to meet their gratification for their own lusts and perverted fantasies. Their eyes are insatiable for sin. They're, they're training them to pursue this, right? Think about Jesus. What did Jesus say? Like when your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. For it's better for you to, to go into the, the kingdom without an eye. Like that's what's causing you to sin. Like remove it, Jesus says. Now he might be speaking in, in hyperbole there, but he's emphasizing the importance. And here it's like, hey, my eye's causing me to sin. Let me feed it. Let me continue down that path. And that path doesn't just stop with that. It says that they're they're seducing the unstable. It's not just them getting into their fantasy. Sure, as bad as that is. And if we back up a little bit as we think about this, this idea of their eyes full of adultery and what they're doing there, it's not hard for us to, to see a, a modern-day parallel with the porn industry. There are many who are enslaved and addicted to this and can't stop. Feeding their eyes in a way that's super convenient. And in the process, objectifying image bearers of God. Removing them from their body, removing them from their, their soul, taking them for just... Something that can give me satisfaction in this moment. And it might be seen as freedom. It might be seen as this is something I can do and I I think I should be able to do. And what you need to understand, this is slavery. This is addiction to sin. If this is you, seek help. Don't let it progress further. You know it's not freedom. This is bondage. You know this is against the word of God. Put practices in your life that are necessary. If your device causes you to sin, throw it away. I've known people who have downgraded from smartphone to flip phone is a necessary thing for them as they pursue purity before the Lord. Being without some conveniences in a smartphone is 
much better than being enslaved to sin. They also seduce the unstable. Remember, Peter is, is urging his audience to be established in truth. Like, that is one of the common themes that we're pulling out from this series, that they're to be established in truth. And when we talked about this idea of being established, it's, 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 it's this idea of, of being able to resist, like falling and being pulled away and being led astray. And here we see why it's so important to be established because the false teachers prey on those who don't have a firm foundation. Deep discipleship matters because it roots you deep into the ground and prevents someone from being easily swayed. Easily swayed by teaching that sounds good but lacks substance. If you develop an appetite for a choice steak... It's going to be much harder to be enticed by chicken nuggets. Uh, and in the same way, when we're, when we're grounded, when we have a steady diet of teaching that makes much of Christ, that takes our sins seriously, that understands the truths of this word, it's going to be much easier to spot counterfeits. It's going to be much easier to spot teaching that simply speaking to us to gain its own approval. That is shallow and has no substance. It's one of the goals here at First Baptist. That's one thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to have programs and, 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 and preaching and have a ministry that grounds people deep in the truth. Does that mean that we won't sin? No. Does that mean that there's not going to be temptation? No, there's going to be temptation. Does that mean that there's not going to be some uh, seduction, like false teachers can still kind of sway and, and have ground? Absolutely, but it's going to be much harder. Are you growing in the truth? Are you grounded and delighting in Jesus? Is the teaching that you hear, is it making much of Jesus or making much of an individual? It says that their hearts are trained in greed as well. It's another characteristic. Their hearts are trained in greed. This idea of, of training this, this is a long, ongoing effort process. This is like, this is like a muscle that's been developed and, and uh, worked. It's like they have a bulging bicep of greed. Right? It's able to do much more damage now. It needs to be fed much more now. Because they've worked at it. They've given in to it. But it's not just a bicep, right? It says it's their heart. The very core of who they are is running after greed, is running after things that bring them satisfaction. This word greed here, it could refer to money. We've, we've talked about prosperity gospels, right? But it could be anything. It could be their addiction and they're greedy for power, right? They're greedy for fame, and anything they can do to continue the likes, to continue the shares, to bring themselves more and more attention. These teachers are not living for the glory of God, but for the object of their heart, whatever they're lusting after. God and people are a means for them to get what they want. This is important for us to understand. 
Many will seem like they have your best intentions in mind, but in the end, it's all about them and feeding their own desires. Peter warns them that they're children of wrath. They're cursed, they're not blessed. They're going their own direction instead of what God has clearly said. He says they're like Balaam. Remember Balaam and Numbers? The book of Numbers, Numbers uh, 22, we, we see this, this idea that, that uh, Balak hires Balaam to put a curse on Israel as a kind of military strategy, right? And Balaam takes the money to try to curse those that God has called blessed. But it doesn't turn out well. In fact, he gets rebuked by his own donkey. <laughs> it literally talks to him like it's going and it's not moving and he's like getting upset. The, the donkey's like talking to him because he's like on this path. He's heading like headlong into the angel of the Lord, like he's, he's like on a death mission, Balaam is. And his donkey's like, no, I'm not going there. Like, I'm not going to, like, stop. And in our passage, it says, don't go the way of Balaam. That's what these false teachers are doing. They're marching headlong into the judgment of God, and they need to be rebuked. They need to turn from that way. It's their only hope. They think that they're wise. They think that they're above everything else. He's like, hey, remember, I've used donkeys before. Like, I've used animals before. And they, they, they corrected people that were prideful like you too. Unless false teachers are rebuked and turned away from their way, they will, head, they will run headlong into the judgment of God. There also might be another lesson from Balaam. He sought to get an answer from God about a question that God had already clearly answered. He sought to get an answer from God about a question that God had already clearly answered. He took money money under the assumption that there was some other way that might be possible, even though he knew it wasn't. This is also a strategy of false teachers. Some know what is true, but will obscure it or question it So it seems there is room open for other possibilities when they know there isn't. Attacking the clarity of God's word. This is often the strategy when it comes to revisionist readings, right, of something like homosexuality. Try to to revise what God has always said. And the best that can be done is trying to throw doubt on what God has clearly taught. There's no way that a positive, beautiful vision can be constructed from God's word. The only thing that can happen is, I'm going to throw a little bit of doubt on this when I know it's clear. There's a very common, common strategy today. And so be careful of that. Well, as you look at application even for, for our own life, a couple things. One, accountability is important. Accountability is important. False teachers use their position and influence for their own gain. There's some who seem to reach a position of influence where people feel they're unable to hold them accountable, where there are no clear structures in place. Ravi Zacharias is one example recently. He was a Christian apologist who was, was very influential. And it came out after he died that he was a serial sexual abuser. Owning massage clinics and feeding his lust through them. 
Some say they saw warning signs but didn't investigate further. Some who were abused were afraid to ruin what God was doing, they thought, through the ministry. Accountability structures are important. There's a reason why we have a child protection policy here at First Baptist Church. There's a reason why we have certain rules in place. There's a reason that the pastor's windows, the offices have windows. Accountability is important. There should be accountability structures in place. Nobody is above that. There's also repentance does not necessarily mean restoration. This is something that we have to understand as well. That even if someone has caught in their sin, they've been teaching in the word of God. Perhaps this is, this is Zacharias before he, 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 he died. Maybe there's a hypothetical situation where he repented of what he had done. What do you do in that type of situation? Well, there's a difference between restoration to fellowship in God's people and restoration to a position of leadership within the church, particularly when that position is what was used to exploit others. I think we need to understand that distinction. Often we think forgiving means full restoration. Well, forgiving could mean restoration to fellowship, but it doesn't necessarily mean restoration to a place that was used to abuse. And so we need to be really careful there. Be irresponsible to put somebody who's, who's abused into a position that they used to abuse other people. You might also ask, what happens when we're deceived? I recently had a question about what to do with someone, and they specifically named Ravi Zacharias. What do you do when someone who had an influential ministry, but under the surface and behind the scenes with someone else? Like I, I learned from this individual. I, I, was, I, was, I was shepherded. Like I, I gained a knowledge and love for the Lord through this individual. Now what do I do? Well, Christians have been dealing with this for a long time. I love the words of the Second Helvetic Confession of Faith that says this, The word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches, for even if he be, an evil and be evil and a sinner, nevertheless the word of God remains still good, true and good. The word of God is what's t- to be remain. This doesn't disregard warning signs. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be, be careful of things and, and, and put accountability. Absolutely. But it does mean that even if we found out later that someone didn't mean a word of what they said, it doesn't take away from the tr- truthfulness of God's word. Our hope does not lie in people, but in God. Now, teachers may fail us. Christ will never fail us. The teachers here were asserting themselves and making more of themselves than they should. And Jesus was marked by humility. He took on flesh and became like us, even though he was fully God. He was not ruled by his passions, but submitted himself to his Father's will. 
We do not have to fear, even though teachers topple and fall, a life established in Christ will endure forever. If you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you to turn to him. Perhaps you've had hurt. Perhaps you've, you've had the sting of, of those you've trusted in and they've deceived you. Listen clearly. Jesus Christ will never disappoint you. How do I know that's true? Because Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross for you. Do you trust in him? Not only was he nailed in a cross, because we, we might say, that, well, that's, that's great, but yet, is, is, that a, is that a fail? No, he rose again. That's what we celebrated last week. He rose in victory. How do I know that Christ will not disappoint you? Because he has risen in victory. Destroyed this temple in three days. I will raise it again. And he did. And you too will be raised in victory if you belong to Jesus. What an amazing, amazing hope we have. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Father, in him our hope is secure. If there's any here this morning that don't know Jesus Christ is their Savior, Father, work on their heart. Draw them to yourself. Bring them to an understanding of their own sin and their own need for Jesus. Father, guard us from the practices of some of these uh, false teachers ourselves and, and help us to be discerning as we listen to others. In all things, shape us into the image of Christ. We long uh, to be like him, to be with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.